predictability is such a huge factor for human beings that people will opt for less chance of success if they know come rain or come shine, that's always going to be there. Welcome to Conversations with Connors. I'm your host, Adam Connors. Most often, my interviews focus on networking. However, this conversation isn't about networking per se, rather how important relationship skills lend themselves to not just getting a job, making a sale, or building a business. Today, I sit with Chris Voss, who helps us understand what negotiations really are and how you can't negotiate successfully without being able to establish a relationship first. In fact, According to Chris, it's the foundation of a good negotiation. While good business negotiation skills mean life or death to a company, Chris's negotiations literally were life and death situations. You see, Chris was the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as well as the FBI's hostage negotiation representative for the National Security Council's hostage working group. Chris is best known worldwide as the author of the book, Never Split the Difference, which, in my humble opinion, is the best book on negotiating that I have read to date, and I've probably read somewhere between five or six others. These days, he is the CEO of the Black Swan Group, where he helps businesses understand what it truly means to negotiate for success. During our conversation, Chris helps us understand what a negotiation really is, the importance that listening makes, the FM DJ voice and a variety of other quote-unquote tells people give when they go into a negotiation. I was really eager to have this conversation with Chris. Unfortunately, during our conversation, there was a slight delay in Skype, so it might come across as a bit awkward. I apologize, and I don't want it to take away from Chris's brilliance. So, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Chris Voss. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Okay. So what does negotiation have to do with relationships? Correct. Can't have a good negotiation without having a relationship. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> so you've got this FM DJ voice that you talk about and you have it. Have you always had that or has that been the result of the craft? I don't know what the answer to that is. I never had the opportunity to be that aware of my voice until I started volunteering on a suicide hotline and the voice that I use there. They didn't coach me to use it. But then they said, wow, your voice is great. And I said, all right, interesting. I have to look back and see what it was so I can keep it up. Now, when you're doing the suicide hotline, would you go back and listen to some of your conversations and do an autopsy? No, I'd have to listen to it while I was doing it. Gotcha. And then did you have a team of people that were listening alongside with you? No, uh, suicide hotlines don't work that way. It's individual people taking calls. Now, at the point in time I was being trained, so while you're a trainee, there's going to be somebody there supervising you, guiding you, watching you. But typically when you're volunteering on one of those lines, you're handling those calls alone. Good. So how would you define what a negotiation is? An attempt to get something through words. Through words. Okay. And do you have a certain mindset when you go into each negotiation? Yeah, well, the mindset's got to be discovery. I mean, it's got to be discovery. You want to be successful. It's got to be discovery, long-term relationships, long-term consequences. Gotcha. And how is a negotiation a failure to you? I don't know. It's a good question. It would depend upon the context. Yeah. It could be a failure because I failed to make a deal when I should have made a deal. How often does that happen? I don't know. 
<laughs> well, I'm a horrible negotiator. I've read your book. Like I said, I've listened to it a bunch of times. I don't know if you find that some people are innately better than others. I forgot whose podcast I heard you on, but you talked about something that I just personally disagreed with, and I'm not the expert, but it was something where my intent, whenever I go into any type of negotiation, no matter what that is, is to hope that the other person on the other end receives a better deal. And I forgot what you said. It was something about, hey, when someone's looking to win-win, that they're not, that they're really not looking to benefit you. Can you expand on that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, I didn't say that when somebody's looking for a win-win, they're not there to benefit you. What I said was when people bring it up early in the conversation, they're there to cut your throat. Okay. <laughs> okay. So let's maybe just use me as an example. Like I'm just genuinely not. Like I genuinely would like to see the other person that I'm having some type of negotiation walk out with a feeling that not only that they've quote unquote won, but hopefully they've done better in the hopes where so let's just call it a business transaction that they'll want to do something with me again. I understand the stakes from what you were doing was a little different and you hope to never be having to deal with another kidnap again with them. But I know you teach business negotiations as well. So how does that differ from what I say? In terms of what? I'm confused. Sorry. Well, did you ask me a question? Yeah, I was wondering about my intent. The intent would be to really see the other person do well. But I think that kind of goes against the grain of some of the things that you've taught, at least my understanding of it through the readings. Is that not true? Well, that's why I just asked you. How is that different than what I said? Oh, man, you're mind gaming me here. I'm not sure. So you took what I said and you changed the words. And I'm trying to get you to discover on your own how you change my words. So how is what you're saying different from what I said? Because if you don't know, you're asking me, how is it different? But I'm asking you to show me how it's different and you haven't been able to answer me. I haven't been able to do that. And now, geez, this is good. <laughs> So what do you do with someone like me? How do you fix or help or steer me in the right direction? Well, I don't tell you anymore because I told you once and it's not sinking in. It's not. So this is what Jim Camp would call guided discovery. Okay. It's what a lot of therapists would call guided discovery. And it's really important in a negotiation to understand what the other person actually said. And I was on a conversation earlier today when it's critical to understand what another person actually said, because if you don't react to what they actually said, then what you're telling them is that you're not listening. Mm. So that's impressive. A couple things you just did on there. So you changed your tone while we were talking because I raised mine a little bit. You acknowledged that whether you were conscious of it or not. I'm sure you were conscious of it. You brought it down. That was that FM DJ voice. You made things. You lowered the energy level, which is awesome. And that's just great. And you are able to pick up on how I'm trying to listen, but also think at the same time. And I know that that's something that you talk about in your book, too. Is that something, again, that's natural or that's something that you've had to practice over and over again to be able to do? Well, you're asking me if our performance in life is due to nature or nurture. And that tends to be an open question. There's a very few people that would argue that nurture practice skills, soft skills are not something that we could build. So it's a matter of whether or not you're building them, whether or not you're becoming aware of them, whether or not you're building them. Let's go back to where we're breaking down. Okay. So you keep telling me that your intent is to have a win-win negotiation. Yes. 
And what I said was, when someone says upfront right away, I want win-win. Now, there's a critical difference in those two circumstances. What are they? The intent, the truth. Uh-huh. You're talking about your intent. And you're saying, like, this is my intent. I have this great intent. My mom had a great phrase. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> That's a classic, yeah. So what I would say is intent is a starting point, but then you've got that implement. Gotcha. I didn't use the word intent when I talked about my characterization. How did I describe my characterization? I don't recall. I'll repeat it again. When someone says up front, let's do a win-win deal. Did I use the word intent? No. What was the circumstance? You said there. Who said it? The counterpart said it. Correct. When someone says to me up front, I want to cut a deal with you, I want to do win-win. When they say it up front, not when they demonstrate it by their intent, but when they say it. Gotcha. So it's just, just words. Now, each and every time someone has said that to me up front, what they mean is I want to win. Hmm. And every conversation I've had that I've drilled down with someone on that, what they tend to be is a high anchor guy or gal. If they want a hundred, they're going to ask for a thousand. And then they say, you know, let's do a win-win. I'll settle for a hundred. It's the old phrase. The person who offers to meet you halfway is often a poor judge of distance. <laughs> so I found it to be a fascinating dynamic, which what you continue to talk about is someone whose intent is win-win. And what I keep talking about is someone who articulates to me right up front. Hey, let's do a win-win deal. Let's do a win-win. I believe in win-win. My consistent data is that guy is going to try and pick my pocket. And I really haven't had anybody let me down yet. Now, you don't have to bat a thousand with that philosophy. All you got to do is do more than 51%. Because if you took a 51% strategy to Vegas, where would you be? You're a winner. You would own the casino. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and we live in a Las Vegas world, although theoretically in negotiation strategies, nobody asks for a thousand percent success rate of what they're already doing. What they ask for a thousand percent success rate on is what you're trying to get them to switch to. And we've had a lot of people push back and say, oh, man, I could see how this there might be instances where this doesn't work. Well, what people forget is what they're doing now. It doesn't work a lot. But the crazy thing that we've discovered to be about fear is that people aren't afraid to fail. They're afraid to fail in a new way. It's the old saying, the devil known is better than the devil unknown. Correct. The irrationality of that fear is one of the reasons why there's a sales book out there that's very popular called Predictable Revenue. Now, the title of that book isn't maximum revenue, it's predictable revenue. And there are people who go like, all right, if I can predict that if I use this method, I'm going to close no matter what, 5% of the time, then a tremendous amount of angst goes away. And if they ask us what our success rate is, and I say, well, anywhere from 23 to 98%, well, they go like, oh, my God, I can't budget over that. I can't predict that. I can't buy a house on that. If I get a mortgage, they want my revenue to be predictable. If they, 
if it spikes and it goes all over the place, the bank won't give me a mortgage. I mean, there's a lot of crazy fears that get in people's heads, which are completely insane. But predictability is such a huge factor for human beings that people will opt for less chance of success if they know come rain or come shine, that's always going to be there. Kind of crazy. Yeah. So you found people to just be that predictable? Yeah, not just me. Danny Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics for Prospect Theory, which was, it's just outlining one idea after another exactly along those lines. And then human beings are eminently predictable along those lines. Once you've gone into a negotiation, how quickly have you essentially sized up your counterpart? You know the game. It's just a matter of the pieces of chess falling in place. Yeah, the only thing I tend to size people up pretty quickly on, first of all, is are they listening and can I trust them? Now, neither one of those are deal breakers. It just tells me how I need to proceed. We will do business, and we, in fact, do business with a counterpart we don't particularly trust. But the overall benefits are worth it. We advance the company in a lot of different ways. There's nothing wrong with having a tiger by the tail. It's just don't kid yourself as to whether or not you're holding on to a tiger. Yeah. Getting back to listening for a second. Before, I guess I wasn't listening or I wasn't listening properly there were so many things that you threw back at me, so it confused me. So I guess, wow, I wasn't listening, and my mind was just racing and racing and racing. At some point, how do you discern between the person that's doing what I'm doing versus the person who just has no intent on listening? Well, not uh, the reaction that you're giving me right now. You're dialing in now. You're paying attention. You're willing to be corrected. You're willing to be shown another way. You're open to the correction. That's a really good sign. At some point in time, if you weren't, it would just mean the process is going to take a lot longer. And then I just got to weigh out the investment of my time versus what are the results that we're getting. at. So there's people that bring us opportunities all the time. We got to weigh out what the investment of our time is versus what the potential reward is. Back to your hostage and kidnapping negotiations, you did about 150. Now that you've come into this next life of yours on the business side, how many negotiations would you say you've done? Business negotiations? Yeah, correct. Between me and now, it's not just me. I mean, we got three guys. There's three of us. Uh, Black Swan is kind of a three-headed creature of operators. Servers. <laughs> we have lost track. The other two guys are coaching every day. I couldn't tell you what the numbers are. I mean, between the people that we've coached, we probably easily in business school and the vast majority of the people that were in our business school classes worked during the day. So we were, in effect, through the course, coaching them in real life deals. There were probably about 1,500 students who went to our class in all industries and from of all ethnicities, Asians, Indians, people literally from Africa and in Africa, people in the Middle East, people in South America, people across the globe. And each one of those did anywhere from one to five negotiations that we coached them through. And that was while we were still teaching in business school. Since then, I speak at least one place a week. And that's a result of a negotiation with us and a client. And I don't cut any of those deals. My director of operations, Brandon, cuts those deals. So he probably cuts four, five, six deals a week. And that doesn't count the people he's coaching. Derek is our full-time coach for us, coach and trainer. He doesn't cut any of the deals. Brandon and Maya put all those deals on his plate. Derek is coaching anywhere from 
three to five people in three to five separate negotiations each and every week. And he's been doing that for us for well over a year. If you were to do the math, I don't got a math head, but you come up with a lot. A lot. A lot. <laughs> so you just touched on something that I think is probably pretty interesting, at least to me it is. You talked about some cultural diversity amongst the types of people and the amounts of people that you've been coaching. Are you noticing certain cultures? I mean, I just know certain cultures in general are, I don't know if I want to call them a negotiation culture, but they grow up more inclined with that in them, not necessarily from a DNA standpoint. Is that something that you recognize? And if so, what are some of the cultural, what cultures have you noticed have some of the best negotiating skills, if you will? Every hostage negotiation team on a planet uses the same eight skills. Whether a hostage negotiators in Cape Town, South Africa, or whether the hostage negotiators in Tokyo, Japan. Now, the reason they use all the same eight skills is because we're all human beings. We all have the same basic wiring. Now, if you want to take a human nature approach, then our negotiation skills work with everybody and everybody kind of has equal pluses and minuses. doesn't matter whether or not you're in Asia. doesn't matter if you're in Baghdad. doesn't matter if you're Bogota. All cultures have pluses and minuses, but they're all human beings. I wouldn't want to say that any culture is inherently better or worse. We're all human beings. And as individuals, we all have there's some predictable threads that cut across all cultures because we're humans. Have you noticed, though, that there's some problem that I guess I'll switch gears here for a second. What about the people that employ some of your own negotiation tactics on you? Do you run into that? Yeah, that's fine. I mean, I'm going to know real quick whether or not you're trying to cheat me or whether or not you're trying to cut a good deal. I would hope you employ my tactics on me because my tactics are let's have a great relationship. Let's exchange information. Let's have the best deal possible. I'm going to know real quick whether or not you want a great long-term relationship, whether or not you want to exchange information, whether or not you want the best deal possible, whether or not you're trying to cut my throat. I would hope you would have our skills. Are there some quick tells when you're negotiating with someone to pick up on to tell how truthful they are or not be? Quick tells. What do you mean by a quick tell? So I don't know whether it's body language, eye contact, the increased speed in their voice, you know, tonality, things like that, that you can just, so this way, you know, oh man, all right, here's what I'm dealing with. I know you say that there's essentially three different types of negotiation styles, but I don't know if you're able to pick up on, I guess, on the, the honesty factor. You can't without context. A polygraph works by laying down context. And that context is what your baseline for telling truth is. So, I know a lot of people like to say, well, look, if you ask someone a question and they look down and they look back up, or they look to the left and then they look at you, those are physical indicators of thought construction before you answer. And if you're constructing thoughts before you answer, it correlates strongly with lying, like you're not giving me the unvarnished truth. Now, while that may be a common occurrence, I don't know that that's the way that you work. So if I don't have your most honest response might be that you look down first. And if I'd say, oh, he looked down, he's a liar, then I'm saying that out of context. So everybody wants a quick tell, but a quick tell's got no context. And the chances of you making a really serious mistake based on a tell out of context is really, really high. How does the skill set, I guess, that you have affect your personal life? Maybe that's a better way. For good or for bad? I'm trying to use it to make my personal life better. 
Yeah. I'm trying to understand more. It's understanding and not reacting emotionally is a really hard thing to do. And we're always better off when we understand we don't react emotionally. It's really hard not to. So I'm trying to make my life better with it. And when are times that you have trouble with that? Yeah, through if I get mad or if I get frustrated or when I begin to lose context. And that's pretty much it. I mean, if I get mad, if I get frustrated, I mean, that it's not emotions that are bad for your thinking. It's negative emotions. To say that emotions are bad for your thinking is equivalent of saying that water is bad for frogs because of the metaphor that a frog would get boiled in boiling water. You know, the old phrase, if you keep raising a temperature, you put a frog in a pot and you keep raising a temperature, they won't jump out and it'll boil. And you could say, oh, my God, water's bad for frogs because boiling water kills a frog. Well, that's out of context. Positive emotions actually make us smarter. Negative emotions make us dumber. What do you do to control that? How do you keep those in check? Practice. Just practice. It's perspective. I mean, there's a couple of hacks. I mean, the most immediate hack for the majority of it is just maintaining a mindset of gratitude, which is cliche stuff. I live in Southern California now, and it's kind of cliche for Southern California for everybody's giving each other hugs and eating fruits and berries and nuts. And you know, the number of people you hear people say, oh, I'm so grateful to be here. But gratitude really is one of the main acts. Yeah, it is. Apologies for interrupting this conversation, especially if you're really enjoying it. I know that I get frustrated when I'm listening to a good podcast, so I'll make it quick. If you're enjoying our podcast, please support us on patreon.com slash networkwise. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash networkwise. All patrons will receive early access to podcasts and exclusive networking advice. Okay, that was painless. So all you have to do now is help us on Patreon and enjoy the remainder of the show. There was, uh, I think it was with Lewis Howe. At the, at the end of your conversation with him, it was great. You talked about when the other side wasn't budging. And you, I love what you, do, do you know where I'm going with this? Do you remember either what you said or what you recommend to say? No, no, not off the top of my head. I don't, I don't remember. It seems like you are powerless and there's nothing you can do. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, yeah. I love that. I absolutely love that, and I cannot wait to employ that. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, nobody likes to be powerless. you got to say it in a nice way, and it's just tone of voice really important, and it's just an observation, and it's after you've been through conversation all the way through, and for whatever reason, you know, they might be giving you nonsense. They might be shutting you down. They might be just shining you on, so it's whatever phraseology you want. But, I mean, it's a last-ditch move. And again, you don't say it as accusatory. It's an opportunity to give somebody a chance to save face and find something for you. Is it your Hail Mary? It can be. There's some other things that I use occasionally. I, I have used that. Seems like there's nothing I could say to get you to change your mind is another one. But I may toss that out just to see if there's anything on the table here or just it's context. Everything's context. You got to have context. Yep, I see it. I hear it, rather. So there are a lot of people out there that, I guess, do what you do. But, again, I really feel like the stuff that I've read from you has just stood out. Are there anyone out there that you read or that you take away? Are there things that you're not necessarily employing or that you're looking to do to get better? you got to read constantly. You can't stop reading. I don't know that I'm reading that much of the people who would be competitors of ours in our space. My son, Brandon, really likes Stuart Diamond's stuff, Stuart Diamond getting more. I've read Stuart Diamond in the past. I think he's a very smart guy. We read way back when Jim Camp's book, Start With No. 
that was a springboard for an awful lot of our thinking. The unfortunate nature of that is that doctrine hasn't evolved since 2002. We got a whole neuroscience has basically been created since 2002. Danny Kahneman of prospect theory has come to the world since 2002. We're constantly improving and evolving what we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about so much more than we were just two years ago when the book came out. I mean, I did chapter 10 of the book. I did a deep dive, chapter 9 or 10, 10, I think 10, did a deep dive on the types of leverage, normative, positive, and negative. We just put some training together that is going to be in video format that I just recorded a couple of days ago. And I said, look, let's skip all that. That's just too confusing and it doesn't do you that much good. So we're soaking up everything we can out there. You got to consistently evolve. It's kind of the Mark Cuban approach. Mark Cuban says there's a 12 year old out there working in a garage who's looking to outsmart me and he wants to pass me by. So we're not willing to let anybody get past us. We feel that we're currently way ahead of everybody in negotiation thought and we got to stay ahead. I saw something on LinkedIn the other day. Guy absolutely ripped off our ideas. Some of our ideas are so completely unique that there's no way he got them from anywhere else. So much so that somebody said, hey, have you read Chris's boss's book, Never Split the Difference? And he was like, oh, no, I've never seen that. <laughs> but we got to stay ahead of the competition because people are going to be knocking us off every step of the way. So we got to stay ahead. Yeah, ain't that the truth? So what do you do with that person? Will you reach out to them, have a conversation with them, or are you just going to let it fly and just move on to the next? No, nah, it's a distraction. What's the downside? Every now and then, I'll throw out an email to somebody like, hey, you know, wouldn't you rather collaborate with us and rip us off? <laughs> I'd much rather make allies and make friends. But if we spent time chasing down everybody that was knocking off our material without attribution, that takes away from my opportunity to create new material. In this particular post, the guy then went back to all his old bad habits and I'm like, all right, so you take one or two and you go back to all your bad habits and you're self-defeating. So, you know, go for it. Good luck. It's a big world. Yeah. I love the calibrated questions that you talk about. Now, again, is this, did this all come from you, from your studying the negotiations that you were part of, or is there a grandfather behind these? Well, hostage negotiators have always had open-ended questions. Yeah. Got really into cutting the list down as a result of reinforcing some thinking we already had from Jim Camp's book, Star With No. Jim Camp was probably principally into, he called them interrogative-led questions, and he really just stuck to questions that started with the word what. And he liked, what's the biggest challenge you face? And then as and we expanded, experimented with some more in hostage negotiation, added how, had become painfully aware of what a problem it is to say why. I mean, why triggers defensiveness? Why is a really bad question to ask even when you need to know why? You shouldn't use the word why. And then I can just remember, I like the term calibrated because a real smart businessman in Washington, D.C. area is also a friend, CEO of a company. His name is John Wood, and he runs an IT government company. They do offensive and defensive hacking on behalf of the United States government. We got to hack into Korea's Internet to find out what's going on in North Korea. But I remember at one conference we were at, he said, you know, you got to calibrate the response. And I thought that's a perfect term for what we're trying to do with calibrated questions, our open-ended questions, the interrogative questions. We're trying to calibrate a very specific effect. It's very specifically targeted and refined to do what we want it to do. A what or how question is calibrated to make the other person feel safe and in charge. And it's calibrated to give them a feeling of a freedom of an answer 
while being very confined by the construction of the question. So that's why we really like the term calibrated, because it's like, know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing and you're firing off a weapon, you have no idea what target you're hitting. And you got some great questions. So when you're going into some of these questions, do you already know, you know, when you're asking your first question, like, hey, how can we solve this problem? Do you know then the next two or three follow-up questions that you have in your mind already? Or are you just so well-versed in this that you can just kind of take it on the fly? Yeah, well, it's how far ahead of yourself do you want to get? And how much do you have to ad-lib? So really, if you're thinking any more than three moves ahead, you're thinking too far ahead. It's hard to come up with a great analogy, but it's kind of like playing chess if all the pieces on a chessboard were connected by springs. We play chess now, and you make a move, and none of the other pieces move. But in life, as soon as you make a move, it changes the emotional tension on everything. And so if you were to play chess and make three moves, and they were all spring-loaded, after three moves, every piece on a board would be in a different spot. So if you'd have thought seven moves ahead, you've been wasting your time. Yeah. Now, you got to think more than one move ahead, and you got to think of a couple of opportunities and options. But you think much farther than that down the line, you've wasted a lot of thinking time on positions that are just going to be gone by the time you get there. And that's a common question. How far ahead do we think? An assertive, I'm a natural born assertive. I'm going to make it up as I go. I don't want to think too much in advance. An analyst loves decision trees. Let's think out 75 possibilities and let's put weighted percentages on all of them. Then we're never going to get caught off guard. Well, we need more moves than an assertive and a lot less moves than an analyst. And then we're probably on track. What are some of the people that employ you? Is it a certain industry? Is it a certain position? Is it a certain type of role, meaning like sales? Are the types of people that typically engage your services? No, we got everybody. We got everybody, every type of negotiation. If they come to us for training, somebody at a higher level of their company stumbled over the book and was like, wow, this works for us. Our guys have to get this. I got to get my guys on this sheet of music. They're going to come to us for training. It's usually easier if they're at a senior level. Somebody at a lower level has trouble bringing us into a company because everybody's got egos and like, well, you're not important enough. If it's an individual, if they come to us for coaching, it's probably because the house is on fire and it's just about burnt down and they want to know what we can do to help. And in some instances, we pull, actually in almost all instances, we pull victory from the jaws of defeat on a regular basis. I think one of the biggest takeaways that I had in reading the book was you might not necessarily be successful just getting yes. It's a matter of seeing the implementation of the yes all the way through. Can you expand on that? Yeah, well, yes is nothing. I mean, yes is nothing without how. The yes addiction is people hate being pushed into a yes. Like, would you like to make more money? Would you like to have more free time? Would you like me to solve all your problems? I mean, those are just such traps. I mean, there's a hook buried in every yes. And the problem is, is that you might be very well-intentioned. You might be trying to be respectful. And the other people that buried hooks in the yeses have stung people so bad that you just can't try to get somebody to say yes without having the other person get concerned. What's the trap? What's the hook? I mean, have you got a few minutes to talk? There's pretty much no exception to where people are not leery of yes. So we don't even bother with it. 
I may ask somebody yes kind of by accident. But if I do, I mean, I get out of it and I'll go to a calibrated question or I'm, I'm trying to provoke more thought out of you than yes anyway. Yes is nothing without how. You might mean yes, but if not through how, not thought through how. So yes ultimately becomes a really useless word. So then to see someone follow through, the how is the follow-up. And then you have them say it one time, two times, three times. Is there a formula? Well, I'm going to say, how are we going to get this done? What are the steps going to be? How do we move forward? And then you lay out those steps. I mean, I'm going to paraphrase with you and confirm them. Then, yeah, if I can get confirmation at least three times in any conversation. Plus, you're more invested every time you repeat it. And if you're going to hear something like you may repeat it back to me, and I've just paraphrased what you've just said, but suddenly a problem has occurred to you. And when you repeat it back, I'm going to hear an hesitancy in your voice. I'm going to hear you go like, yeah, oh, uh. <laughs> And so then I'm going to like, okay, all right, so this is what you said, but it sounds to me like you thought of something. It sounds to me like in the middle of that thought there was something that gave you some hesitancy. I mean, I got to smoke out the problems. You got to smoke out the implementation. Asking how is the start and then getting summarizing and paraphrasing to that point forward is a way to get everybody in the same sheet of music so you don't have to do everything over. And then what's the balance between being too pushy and getting the deal done or closed. Well, what's pushing? Some people, again, that's where you're dealing with different personalities. I know you need to know the context, but maybe you're saying, okay, well, this is going to be done. How's it going to be done? The person says, well, you know, I'm going to go back to my boss and my boss is going to sign it and then the deal is going to be done. And then I don't know if you say, well, don't you have the authority to do this? What's the likelihood of your boss signing it? At what point do you slow down a little bit or, or stop or put on the brakes? I think if you got clarification on everything, two to three times, you're going to let me know when you go like, because a boss is going to sign it. I mean, your tone of voice is going to give me clarity. Mm. How often do these deals go awry? Well, the less time you spent on Im- implementation, the more often they go awry. Yeah, just getting the yes isn't enough. You really got to see this thing through. Yeah, and you know, your counterpart, they could be giving you yes and, and very well-meaning. We were competing for a deal for via the partner that we don't like, for some negotiation training from one of the major telecommunications companies. And through the process, we found out that 50% of their signed deals never get implemented. Oh, my God. That seems like an extraordinarily high number. But do you know, is there an industry standard that you've seen? I'm a tip of the iceberg theorist. When I hear a data point, I don't automatically, since it seems odd to me, I don't automatically go, well, that's enough. That's actually kind of a dumb way to approach things. You hear a data point, you better be thinking, this is the tip of the iceberg. Because everything that we see is either an anomaly or it's a tip of the iceberg. Now, just based on numbers, everything we see can't be an anomaly. But if it's people have a tendency to disregard things too quickly. So if I hear that a company's 50% of their deals that are signed are never implemented, then my data is... That's the rule rather than the exception. Mm. And I haven't had any follow-up information that contradicts that since. So what did you do with this company that had the 50%? Well, we didn't get the deal. We didn't think we were going to get the deal. To me, I can smell pretty early on whether or not I want a deal. Like multinational companies, really big companies, tend to be high maintenance. And high maintenance is a profit reducer. Like I would rather have a small business as a client than Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is going to be a pain in the neck. And even if I get full price from them, 
they're going to be needy and high maintenance, which is going to kill my implementation and my profitability. And they're going to whine and they're complain. They're going to want special stuff because they're Coca-Cola. And a little small 10-person operation is not going to whine and complain. And they're going to implement the stuff. And then they're going to hit huge home runs. And Coca-Cola is not going to do that. They're going to be a big pain in the neck. So if the fact that we didn't get a contract with a major telecommunications carrier tells me that we didn't get a contract with a high-maintenance complaining client. And I'm happy for that to happen. So I have an eclectic group of followers. Those that are listening, do you have a sweet spot in terms of clientele? So we'll stay, not that you're necessarily staying away from the Goldman Sachs and the Bridgewaters of the world, but it sounds like you like the small to mid, uh, what I call the smid companies. Is that fair? I just want somebody who's going to listen and not whine and complain. And when people are engaging your services, are they engaging? How do they work? Is it a package? Do they hire you to maybe negotiate just one deal at a time? Walk me through your business. Well, we don't negotiate people's deals for them. We'll coach you through a deal and we'll coach you on a short-term basis because that's all it's going to take to get you through the deal. On a regular basis, I mentioned to my guy Derek the other day. He coached a client in a negotiation they'd been engaged in for 18 months. He had it resolved in less than a week. Another deal that he coached another client in selling with an insurance company. That had been ongoing for two years. He had that settled in a week. So we tend to get things done very fast. And are you charging per deal or how are you compensated? Is there an hourly? Is it a contract basis? Is it a success fee? All the above? Hourly plus success. Gotcha. And if someone wants to get in touch with you, I'll put it all in the show notes. I don't know if you want to share that information now. I'm happy to put that in the show notes also. Yeah, first step is actually to subscribe to the newsletter, The Edge. I mean, that's the gateway to everything. That's a weekly, short, sweet dose of good negotiation ideas and training announcements. And when you click on the single article that comes out each week, it takes you right to the website. And so it's a gateway to the website. And the best way to subscribe to The Edge is via text, and you send uh, FBI empathy, all one word, don't let your spell check autocorrect it into two words, and send that text to 22828, and the number again is 22828, FBI empathy, and it signs you right up for the uh, newsletter. Okay, that's great. One last question before I let you go. What do you do for fun? I do this for fun. I travel. (laughs) I see the world. I mean, we've been so focused on a business especially since the book came out. I mean, I like to travel. I like to get out, but I love what I do. I mean, this is a lot of fun. I don't need that much of a break from what I do. That's great. How much time of your day is this occupying? All of it. It is. Yeah. And at what point did you realize that you were in your zone? At what point did you realize this is what I'm going to be doing? I've been immersed in whatever I was doing for a living since I left college. I mean, that's kind of my MO. It's all I thought about. I slept it. I ate it when I was a police officer, when I was full-time hostage negotiation for the FBI. One of the new people in the unit said to one of my colleagues, like, you guys breathe this stuff. And our answer was like, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's always been that way. Yeah. Maybe one more question, if you're okay with that. I love how you got into this, this field, because it wasn't natural. Do you mind sharing that? Because I think it's a great story about how you got into this, because you didn't have a law degree. You weren't an accountant. You didn't have any of that training. And I think that's a a really special story about what you had to do to get into this field, the relationships that you had to build and the perseverance. 
Well, I think you're talking about volunteering on the suicide hotline. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and it was I was told that was the best thing I could possibly do was volunteer on a suicide hotline. And the crazy thing was, I mean, it just seemed so obvious to me that I should do it. And after I did it, the person that gave me the advice was shocked. She said, I tell everybody to do that. And nobody does it, which to this day amazes me. But, you know, there's an old saying, never take advice from someone you wouldn't trade places with. But if that person is somebody you trade places with, you darn well better take that advice. <laughs> and she was in charge of the negotiation team. She told me what to do, and I did it. And as it turns out, that's highly unusual, which is the dumbest thing in the world. But very few people seek advice from the right person and then actually do it. Well, you know the saying about common sense is not so common. Exactly. Chris, I really I appreciate you uh, carving out the time. I know we went over from the allotted time that we have. I think what you're doing is fantastic. Like I said, I can't think of any book I've read as many times as yours. Awesome. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. You make it a great day. I'm really glad you made it through the whole show. It tells me that you found it entertaining and enjoyed the content. In the spirit of helping us continue to provide such great content and amazing guests, we appreciate your participation through Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash networkwise. Your support really helps. Also, if you or someone you know is looking for a career change, is building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to NetworkWise.com. Not only does this platform offer you a plethora of resources, but will walk you through how to expedite the outcomes and the aforementioned goals that you seek. Thanks again for listening. Make it a great day. And remember to always NetworkWise.